subscribe and rate it. Five stars. What's up, Cliff? Nothing much, man. Just working. Working as usual. A lot of stuff's happening at the museum. Moving forward, uh, we're going seven days a week now. I picked up another employee. He's going to be covering some days for me. Uh, you haven't met this guy, though. He's good. He's, his name is Nico. Nico Spathadora. He's kind of a bone guy. He's a, he's a fossil dude. Um, he has a, his own business called The Fossil Team, where he, he takes fossils of cool things like T-Rex things and giant you know crocodiles and goes into schools and talks about, uh, you know, paleontology basically and uh he's fantastic there have been several times even in the last week or two since he's been hanging out that um somebody sent me a, a picture of a skull that was like partially damaged in some ways and say this is a primate skull and, and i showed him that this ain't a primate skull dude what is this he goes he looks at it, he goes um oh that's a pig look it just immediately identifies it so um he's a really good uh addition to the team here at the nabc so he's going to be covering a couple days a week, and we're even thinking about letting him loose on a weekend, you know, because weekends are a busy time. Maybe doing like a fossil team Sunday or something like that, where he brings in some cool artifact from his collection, so kids and families can come in and ask him questions, and he, they can nerd out over fossil dinosaur stuff. So, right on. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. What about you, man? You finishing up the production and everything, or what's going on? Um, we're doing three at once, so we're almost done with the Oregon one. We just got editing to do on that. The other two, um, doing that one down in Big Sur that's coming along. Got a couple more witnesses lined up. Film permits are coming along. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going. It's, it's, it's a pain in the ass. And COVID, this reemergence of the COVID stuff is definitely throwing more – hand grenades into the mix but we'll get through it so you're doing a mostly like advanced field production is that what you're doing or just kind of wearing all sorts of hats yeah this uh down in big sur i was i printed up hundreds of flyers and was driving around all these rural properties out there back in the back roads and stuff and dropping them in mailboxes saying have you seen a you know anything squatchy basically you know just telling them hey we're working on a documentary bigfoot and big sur Wondering, you know, if you got anything, any strange stories, you know, even if it's just lights or weird sounds or stick structures, whatever, whatever you got. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're going to delve into the history, like, uh, the, what is it? Steinbeck. Was yeah, Steinbeck. There you go. Yeah, Steinbeck uh, with the, the guys with hats on and stuff. The Night Watchers. Night Watchers. There you go. Or the Dark Watchers. Yeah, they, they describe them as giant shadowy things with like a, wearing a hood, you know, which is basically like the modern day description of. I thought it was a guy in a hoodie or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it sounds like a Sasquatch what he's describing. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of got to wonder, you know, kind of got to wonder. And that whole, that whole, the, the, the big Sur range down there were the Sierra Madres. Is that what they're called? There's um, a Santa Lucia's and then there's, there's, there's a few different ranges in that, in that strip. It's 3000 square miles. Oh, it's fast. That was what I was going to say about it. It is absolutely mind bogglingly fast and it's practically on the doorstep of Southern California. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, there's very little access to there, and especially since the fire stuff got bad a couple of years ago, the main two roads cutting through are shut off. I mean, it is it's it's isolated out there, and it's all private property. Just about I mean, like it's or government, it's, right? Yeah, but but the government stuff there's there's no access to most of it. Yeah, it's a tremendous area. What I remember about it, of course, is uh, um, 
it's first of all, it's isolation. It is how hard it is to get in there as we're talking about. Um, and the presence of giant redwoods, the coastal redwoods, I think it's, a, I think that's as South as they go. Am I right, Bobes? Uh, yeah. Big Sur is a South. There's a, couple pockets in central northern Big Sur that have redwoods. Yeah, I remember that. And the other two things that stick out kind of together for me are ticks and poison oak. Yeah, it's – it's uh, but you know what? I've never – I was out with Bart there uh, two weeks ago, and I'd never heard so much rodent life in one spot at night. I mean, the food supply there is just insane. I mean, there's so many wild pigs and deer and rodents and – it's just loaded. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that's a, it's been a fairly ignored area of um, the wilds of California for a long time. So I'm glad you guys are delving into that. Um, it's it's unfairly neglected, I think, as far as Bigfoot stuff. Yeah, but it makes sense why it is. <laughs> but if you got access to, I mean, there's some huge ranches in there, like nine thousand, thirty thousand acres. I mean, you would also most people down there are pretty wealthy, and wealthy people are, I've noticed are way more hesitant to come forward with stuff like. They don't want any attention. They don't want the people coming around. And, and those people live in, in those places because they want privacy and quietness. They don't want to start a big zoo catastrophe in their, you know, where they live because also there's a bunch of Bigfooters showing up. Yeah. Now, what do you think? Do you think that those fears are are unfounded or is there something to them? I think they're way overblown. I mean, there's so much Bigfoot stuff happening all around the country. I don't think it's like it used to be like where. Something like, you know, like you read about like in the 60s and 70s, like the such and such monster popped up and there would be like 500 carloads of people driving around with spotlights, you know, like around that whole area. You know, that doesn't really happen these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I got a, um, a, my friend Jeff Lemley, who was uh, he's a Bigfooter. He was he's associated with uh, he was on the Skookum expedition, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff Lemley. Uh, he he passed on to me a box of stuff that he um, got from Doctor Leroy Fish's widow. Um, and it's mostly, you know, papers that were run off from the internet, you know, very, you know, early 2000s internet stuff, you know, 95 to 2005 stuff. Um, but there's some other cool things in there. And one of the, one of the things that, uh, was in that box that he gave the museum here, uh, was, uh, um, some of the early, um, I guess, email threads, uh, about the Skookum cast after the Skookum cast was obtained and like what to do with it and how to deal with it. And some people in the BFRO were saying, we need to keep this area quiet so we can look into it more. And then I remember John Green actually came and says, no, we need to tell everybody where this is. So more people will go there and more information will come out. And, uh, and I'm saying, I keep, and you know, he, there, there's points on both sides. Yeah. I keep a lot of my locations um, quiet, or at least in code names, you know, Easter Island, the Blueberry Bog, all that kind of stuff, um, because I can talk about it openly. And I don't want people going there to hoax things or to blow the Bigfoots out. Um, right. But at the same time, you know, when we when I hear about these, you know, and I've heard, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably heard about this sort of th- stuff too, and maybe maybe you've heard the opposite. But like uh, um, gravel pits where people go shooting and stuff, mm-hmm. the Bigfoots keep going back. And, and you know, if people shooting guns in the woods isn't enough to drive a Bigfoot away, what is? Um, so cameras. I, I don't know. There's kind of, what, what is what cameras. Cameras, yeah, maybe, maybe. Or, but do they care? I don't know. These things are endlessly befuddling to me. I just call myself Cliff the Befuddled. <laughs> Well, hopefully we can unbefuddle some of the people listening today because we're going to do Q&A. Yeah, my favorite kind of episode to do, just hanging out with Bob's, talking about stuff, answering questions from listeners. And yeah, it's just, I, this is literally my favorite kind of episode to do now. Me too. Well, we, we do have um, the first question, Bob. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. 
Um, Jonathan Easley asks, what is the most exciting Bigfoot quote unquote happening that each of you have been involved in? For example, seeing fresh nest sites on the OP, finally finding the PG film site with the Bluff Creek project or that, that kind of stuff. So what, what was what, maybe one or maybe it's so hard to say my favorite or, you know, the best. I don't like those kind of questions like because everything else is automatically of less importance and there's so many cool things. So, Bubba, what are a couple of the things that stand out to you that you've been able to be involved in that, that kind of just stand out for whatever reason? Well, for me, obviously, the first encounter I had where I didn't even see him, but I, heard, I didn't see him until five nights later. But that was my most my most memorable Bigfoot event. But being with everyone else, maybe the thing I was most excited about with Bigfoot, it was a Yeti thing. It really was going to the Pengboche Monastery in the Himalayas in Nepal where the hand and the, the hand and the scalp were at. Yeah, yeah, that was an amazing event. Something I never, I really never, ever thought I would do. Yeah, the the Finding Bigfoot gave us a lot of really neat opportunities like that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that stands out to me in the more recent years since Finding Bigfoot is uh, being called up to the uh, the OP, the Olympic Peninsula, with the the Olympic Project uh, just a few days after um, Shane and Todd discovered the new nest site. I thought that was pretty cool because it was right on the cusp of discovery. It was after those guys encountered whatever it was making those nests. But um, it was when we were there, uh, w- when I was there with those guys, that um, I got to cast those, those strange handprints nearby. And then we also cast footprints at the nest site itself, they're, thereby uh, supplying a one-to-one correlation with the nest site and, a, and the Sasquatch. Um, and some of those footprints were underneath the nesting material. Which means that it was there when it's you know before the nesting material was starting started being piled on the ground to make the nest, um, and there of course there's a handprint where the thing was digging out underneath the log, and that was really cool because those things even though um, Shane and Todd had and I didn't even need Derek and other people from the Olympic Project had been to the site, those were undiscovered footprints, um, and I thought that was really cool. So that was kind of a one of one of the things that stands out to me in this regard. So right on. So then we had Lee Wilson ask us, taking a random selection of 100 reports, what percentage, in your opinion, would be a misidentification? Example, bear, elk, et cetera, false, hoax, or worth further investigation? Ah, well, if you took a, okay, just percentage, 100 reports, random. I think that um, I, would, I would take a guess that the smallest percentage would be a hoax. Um, because hoaxing takes something special. It, it takes some sort of like mental illness or instability, in my opinion, uh, to want to go out and lie purposefully to people for whatever reason. Maybe these are, uh, you know, just jokers or something like that. Or maybe these are um, skeptics who want to prove that Bigfoot or Bigfooters can be fooled. Well, everybody knows Bigfooters can be fooled. What kind of fool doesn't think that? Um, but So I think the smallest percentage would be the hoaxers. Um, and then... Well, it depends on the uh, on if you just took a random sampling of a hundred, like this, like like Lee Wilson says. Um, I think uh, it might the rest might be split down the middle as far as misidentifications and real Bigfoot things, um, unless we're just talking about Class A things. 
because it's but he said random random selection so we have to assume that these are going to be bumps in the night and vocalizations and things that weren't seen but but or or shadows moving about i I think probably split the rest of them so maybe like five or ten percent five percent hoaxes maybe maybe ten but five percent hoaxes and the other ones i'd split down the middle and say half and half as far as real reports that might have something that that do have something about bigfoot and maybe misidentifications i do find that most people are well-meaning and honest um, and, but then again, you know, we all see, we look around in the world and we see ourselves. The world is essentially a giant mirror that we get to see in ourselves. We are all projecting all the time. So the people who see, you know, liars and falsehoods, well, they need to look a little bit more closely inside. I think that they may have some sort of a trouble, troubling uh, personality situation, but, um, or maybe I'm just naive, which is a possibility as well, but I prefer to be naive than look around and think that everybody's lying to me. I don't know what kind of existence that would be. It's a very unsatisfying one. I think it's very dark. What are, you, what are your thoughts, Bobes? Well, the first few years I was doing it, I thought it was like 95% were like real, like, you know, they're not going to lie. They, they say they saw it, they saw it, or they heard these things that they heard. Like they, you know, I, was, I figured everyone was hearing the Sierra sounds. And then when I found out, you know, it's, it's rare to hear things like the Sierra sounds. And almost, almost every time I've gone somewhere to hear a Bigfoot with somebody that definitely heard Bigfoots, it's almost always been coyotes or owls. Yeah, yeah. People are well-meaning. They're just not they're aware of the sounds, uh, the variety of sounds that some of these normal wildlife make. Exactly. But so I, I guess I'd say about, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even give, I wouldn't even give 45% to the, or legitimate, I'd say even less. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 that could very well be true. Very well be true. We, we don't know. <laughs> No, we have no, no no way to know. That's the great thing. We can say whatever we want, and we're as right as we can be. <laughs> yeah. It's not often that happens. All right, next question is from uh, Harry Keel, it looks like. Other than something Bigfoot-related, what are a few things on your bucket list? Ooh. Well, I want to I go to mainland Europe and tour, uh, tour around there and check out. I'm a history buff, so I'd love to go spend, if it's a bucket list thing, I mean, do I, have I won the lottery and I could just do whatever I want? Then it would be, I'd spend a lot of time traveling around Europe. Europe, uh, just for the history of it, right? Yeah, and then go to Africa on safari. Oh, yeah, 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 that'd be cool. That'd be really cool. Yeah, the hard part is the, the Bigfoot-related thing. Because, you know, I don't know, I, I've said this before, but there's so many of my Bigfoot-related bucket list items have been crossed off. It's making me very aware of my own mortality. It's a little yeah. scary, you know. I got to keep building up this list so I have other things to try to do. But as far as non Bigfoot related things, um, it's kind of a hard question for me. I, I guess uh, th- to go with the spirit of the question, I, I would probably want to go fish the um, peacock bass in Brazil. Hmm. You know, because I mean, I love to fish. I, I don't. I don't get a chance to fish as much as I used to. I used to, when I lived in Southern California, of course. I was, you know, I worked at the at a fishing tackle store. Um, I started out at Angler's Tackle Box in Seal Beach. It's gone now. It was over by the Taco Bell over there in Seal Beach. And then um, I moved over to Fisherman's Hardware in Long Beach for a long time, right next to Joe Jost. I think that place is gone too. But anyway, the the point here is that uh, I was on the boats all the time. I was at Catalina Island and doing all that sort of stuff. And I'd always see these amazing pictures from these uh, wealthy people that got to travel the world to go fishing. And um, uh, and when they'd go to Brazil or you know Peru and those places, they'd be fishing the um, the, the the peacock bass. Um, and they're just beautiful fish. In fact, I used to keep them as. Bobo, you know, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I, I, I have an aquarium. Um, I used to have quite a few aquariums. I'm just down to one now, a 55-gallon aquarium I've had since I was probably 19. 
same one all these years, but I used to keep peacock bass and they're smart fish. They're really aggressive, kind of hard to keep in a lot of ways. And, um, but, uh, really, really beautiful fish. And there's just something about going down there and fishing for the most aggressive, spectacularly colored, beautiful, intelligent. I, mean, I don't know if they're intelligent, but they seem smart fish in the world would be just amazing. So I'd like to pr- maybe do that. I think. Yeah. I got to tie in a couple of those, uh, we did that night when we got someone had a fishing pole, one of the Brazilians, and well, yeah, we yeah we fished for piranha for a little while. I remember that. No, at the hotel. Oh, at the hotel. No, no, on the boat we were fishing for piranha, and then one of the nights, Dudu took us uh, uh, snorkeling in the river at night, which was yeah. a lot of fun. You know, like, and we and I remember going into the reeds um, with a light, an underwater light. And I even have some pictures of this stuff because I, I brought an underwater camera. Um, and I saw peacock bass in the reeds as well as some other, you know, cichlids and things like that that I would see. But I saw a couple wild peacock bass in the reeds there. Um, that was neat. But what did you get to do at the hotel? Oh, yeah. So when you guys were gone, um, the Brazilian guy that I was with got a little fishing pole. And there, there were peacock bass on the hotel grounds in those ponds. Oh, they were huge. Oh, I know. I was salivating yeah. over those, right? Yeah, we were doing catch and release on those things. <laughs> those were big fish, too. Those had to be like 12, 15 pounds or more. I think there was a couple of 18 pounders. Maybe even One of them seemed just massive. But, man, I'd never forget. I think I got about three strikes. Like where I got four. It was just a barbless hook. And then we got caught and they yelled at us and all that. But I got to feel the power, you know, and it was it was crazy. I'd, and I've done a lot of sport fishing and the way those things hit, it really was amazing, like, like you always hear about. Oh, yeah. It, I've seen some videos and what. It's just spectacular attacks on these topwater jigs. Um, you know what? I, I, I Had I known they were going to have, you know, peacock bass and whatever else in the um, – essentially like in, in the pond but around the pool, you know, um, had I known they were going to do that, I would have brought laser pointers. Uh, to Brazil uh-huh. and uh, just played with them all day long, or or um, you know dragged a top lo- a top water lure across with no hook in it just to see the water explode. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Oh, I can can only imagine. I can only imagine. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Question: Keaton Rigney. What is one aspect in regards to Sasquatch that you both will always debate or never share the same opinion on and why? Uh, There's things that we feel differently about, but like... Yeah, the sticking part with this question with me is never share the same opinion on. Because when evidence comes out, I think both of us are flexible enough in our thinking to say, no, I was wrong. Or, you know, oh, no, gosh, well, this is really... Inflexible thinking is not a valuable tool in my toolbox, you know? If evidence comes forward... Like, for example... um, like the paranormal aspect with these lights and orbs and stuff like that, right? I'm thoroughly unconvinced. I think it's what you're pretty convinced, aren't you, Bubs? Yeah, I think they're associated some degree. Yeah, I'm unconvinced, but that's not mean I'm unconvincible. Right. They just need proof. <laughs> Yeah, well, so, or just a, a series of evidence, right? Um, so that's the sticking point with this question for me that we will always debate or never share the same opinion on. If evidence comes forth that for whatever reason Bigfoots can make orbs and or turn into whatever, then I'm all for it. But it's the evidence part. You know, that's what that's, that's what it is with me, at least. That's what I think I, my answer, not to butt in and answer your question or whatever first, but Yeah, like, well, I'm I'm positive. Like, I'm 99.9% positive they have a, 
a language, an advanced language. I'm positive they make stick structures and use, you know, like kind of like the hieroglyphics glyphs for uh, communication, like on a small level. I think they, I'm convinced they carry off their dead and dispose of their dead, like bury them in caves or whatever, or bury them and just put big rocks that people can't move without equipment over them. So there's stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not really on board with most of that stuff. Um, to some degree, I mean, the language thing, I think that there's really something too. I'm very, very open to that. There's some evidence for that, very compelling evidence too, speak, after speaking to you know, Mr. Nelson and stuff. Um, some of that other stuff, I don't see a, I don't see the reason to bury the dead, you know? I, I don't, and especially, gosh, there's so many reasons for it too. Um, the, like the lack of tool and fire use is really the catch with me. And it seems that um, symbolic thinking may have come a little bit after that. The really, really well-developed symbolic thinking. But if they have language, that's symbolism right there. So um, I don't know. It, it, we're, we have a lot to learn by studying Sasquatches. And after they're proven to be real animals, um, real things out there walking around, then um, we're going to learn a whole lot about the order in which our own species evolved, um, which I think is going to be fascinating. Um, really, Sasquatches are the coolest mirror we can hold up to ourselves in a lot of ways, at least until other unknown hominoids come to light. So. Yeah, I was going to say, what will be really rad will be when they start being able to compare like, the O-Tang to the Sasquatch versus the Yeti. You know, like, oh, then the Almasty and the, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. That's that's what I that's going to be the most interesting thing to me is, and we're going to learn so much more about human evolution. It's going to be, it's going to blow the anthropologists, that whole community. They're going to be blown away. Yeah, yeah, because the Otang, which of course, uh, as our listeners know, is a South African species of some sort. That um, you can go back and listen to our interview with Gareth Patterson about that, who had seen these things back in South Africa over the last decade or so. The Otang is, it, with this position and all that sort of stuff, is is probably an Australopithecus of some sort. It might be Homo naledi, I guess, because that's a South African uh, hominin, but it's probably Australopithecus. And if I'm if I'm correct in my my guess that Sasquatches are Paranthropus of some sort. Um, and that just went north and traveled over the land bridge and one of the many times it was open over the last X number of years. Um, well, paranthropines are basically Australopithecus. Um, they're just a robust form. So it'll be interesting to see how they evolved differently by leaving right. Africa and going to different areas. Right. And of course, the Almasty, if, who knows what that thing is, maybe a Neanderthal, maybe a Denisovan, or maybe something else. Um, to compare them, and if we can get a genetic link on some of these things, like Aust- and we can maybe look at the differences between living uh, or current form, I should say, the, the f- current form of Australopithecus versus uh, Paranthropus versus, I don't know, what Denisovan, Denisovan or Denisovan, however you say it, uh, versus Neanderthal. That's going to be really cool because that'll give us windows into the past that we've never had before. Yeah, exactly. That's, what, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's going to... God, I, get, I just get so pumped when I think about like, who know, like, you know, projecting twenty years into the future and what we're going to know. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's not what Ke- Keaton asked either. But too bad. That's what that's the answer, that's the answer you get. <laughs> you came to our show. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, the next question here from Joe Benson: Has anyone been able to determine approximately how many sightings have occurred in North America over the past, say, 50 or 100 years by using multiple credible databases? Well, I know this from living up here in this area, like, you know, almost 35 years now, taking, you know, talking to witnesses and reports and getting up, you know, in the thousands and thousands. It's, uh, I, from my experience, it used to be like 
like less than a half, like about a half a percent even reported it, like to any kind of database? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, I haven't been in the, the FLATS database for a long time. The BFRO database is called FLATS. It's an acronym for follow-up logging and tracking system. It's where all the raw reports come in, and then the BFRO investigators can choose one and then do follow-up stuff and do a little write-up, and it gets published on the online for the public to see. But last time I was in FLATS, there were something like 30 or 35,000 raw reports. And that was a decade ago. So there must be 50 or 60 by now. I mean, I don't know. Be inter- Maybe I should give Matt a call and ask him. But, um, and of course, a lot of those aren't, aren't actual sightings. Um, they're just questions that were sent to the wrong link or whatever. A lot of those are hoaxes. A lot of those are, you know, eight-year-olds or the mental equivalent of eight-year-olds trying to lie to BFRO people. And, and so you have to, let's just take half of those away right away. So that's what 20,000, we'll just say 20,000, nice round number that there's some legitimate well-meaning people behind. And using our numbers from earlier this conversation, maybe half of those are are real and half of those are uh, misidentifications. That's 10,000 right there. So if your number bubble is right, maybe half a percent of people actually uh, report these things. And I think that's probably accurate because uh, just in the last year and a half or two years at the North American Bigfoot Center here, we've gotten about 125 reports, maybe something like that from our local area, Clackamas County, Multnomah County. And on the BFRO public database, there's like 20 or 30 if you take all those things cumulative together. So that's a big difference, boots on the ground versus a website that covers the world, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'd say between one and five hundred thousand is a real safe number. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's safe. Also, I, yeah. we agree. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> well, good, good. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's go to the next question then. All right, Lauren Koch. She wants to know, or Lauren Koch wants to know, has anyone ever seen or collected evidence from a pregnant Sasquatch? I don't know about collecting evidence, but I know people that have seen pregnant ones. And I've actually talked to two people that said they saw one give birth. Oh, I haven't talked to that. I have spoken to people who have seen pregnant ones, though, or what they thought were pregnant ones, at least. Yeah, the one, the one, uh, it was actually, it was part of that whole thing back in 1992 up at uh, Wilson Creek up there and Hunter Creek up in Del Norte County with the, the, remember when Scott, Harriet went out there and filmed that one that was like laying down by the log and the eyes glow red and all that. Yeah. Yeah. The native woman there, her and her ex-husband were hiking up in there and they came across and there was like within a hundred yards of that big tree there. They always talk about the big redwood, redwood snag. Uh, it was just not far from there, maybe a hundred yards down the hill during this whole time period within like, you know, a couple of months of this all happening. She said that the, the male was standing over the, the female was laying on her back with her knees up in the air feet in the air and she was you know going through labor and the male was standing right above her like looking down on her he was standing up you know above leaning over her head and that um all of a sudden the, they both looked at she said she didn't do anything she, they didn't make any noise but the both the sasquatch's heads turned and stared at them and the male's eyes like he showed his teeth and his eyes started burning bright red in the middle of the day just just started flaming red and they just took off, and that was they didn't see him anymore after that. They didn't get harassed or chased. But she said that the the um, head was coming out. She could see that like, it was it was totally giving birth, like blood and everything, the all that fluid coming with it, and the head was crowning out. And they were just 
blown away. I mean, did you hear that? You're just like, God, what do you do with that, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what you do with that. We got a report here a few weeks ago, or maybe about a month and a half ago now. My, as everyone knows, my sense of time is rather elastic. But um, uh, yeah, about a month or two ago, we got a report. A woman called in, and she's, she said that she saw one that she thought was giving birth. Um, and I, if I remember right, Connor took the report, but he told me about it. And if I remember right, um, she had – I'll say she because uh, – Clearly, a female Sasquatch would be giving birth if she's correct. If this witness is correct, um, she, apparently she had uh, the Sasquatch had her hands against the tree and her um, and kind of almost like you're trying to push a tree down, but like the, the legs were spread behind, and she was apparently not. She's making sounds that in, in, indicated to the witness that she was actually giving birth at the time. And I think the woman, the the witness herself, was in a boat, if I remember right, and they went by this thing and checked it out. And then another guy in Alaska that I know, he was one of my suppliers, uh, my vendors for a while. Um, he still is. We just haven't bought from him for a while. But um, he saw a Sasquatch in Alaska, I think, digging on the beach or poking around on the beach for clams or whatever it was looking for. Um, and he was also in a boat. And uh, this, he, he said that the, the Sasquatch had a belly the size of a basketball. So he thinks that this thing was pregnant. Um, and I, I spoke to Rob Alley about that, of course, Dr. Rob Alley, who's that the resident, our resident Alaskan expert guy. Um, and he knew the witness, and I believe that he said that he wrote it up in one of his books. It must have been Raincoast Sasquatch because his second book, Brushes with Bigfoot, had not been released yet. So it must be in Raincoast Sasquatch, or maybe it's just in his files and he never published it. But uh, I those think it's in his files. I don't think it's in the book, I don't think. Yeah, you you you're, you have an excellent memory for that kind of thing, like what you've read and stuff like. So if you say it's not in the book, I'm going to believe you on that one. Yeah. Well, I haven't read the book in like 15, 10, probably 10 years. But yeah, and by the way, that's one of my favorites. That's definitely top 10 Bigfoot books for me. Oh, it's fantastic. His new one's pretty good too. I haven't so. read that one yet. I just got a. I just ordered a Haskell Hart's DNA study book. Oh, dude, you should order it from me. I got him autographed. All right. Well, I'll cancel the order. Yeah, if you want to. Yeah. Um, uh, let me know. Give me a call and I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. Um, and then, of course, uh, we also have autographed uh, um, brushes with Bigfoot from Rob Alley. So if you need one of those, let me know. I need both those. Okay. Okay. We can figure something out. Cool. All okay. Right. Next question. It's your turn there. This comes from Mark Bunn. Question. I assume someone has tested the soil of a potential Bigfoot track for environmental DNA. Can that be done? Take a cliff. You assume incorrect. No one has done that because it is cost prohibitive. Although I've, I've started collecting and saving the dirt from underneath Sasquatch prints. Um, for this very purpose. Um, yes, it can be done. Yes, it can be done. But the question is, how many skin cells are shed with every step? We don't know that. So it's kind of iffy. Um, and again, this environmental DNA stuff it will, will yield answers eventually. But the, those pockets who can afford that sort of testing are way deeper than mine. Um, we're talking, I don't know, four to $7,000 a test, really. Um, so it's a little problematic. Um, but can it be done? Absolutely. Should it be done? Absolutely. Has it been done? Not to my knowledge, because who has that kind of money to throw around? Um, you know, so it, and certainly the sooner you would test it, the better. I, I think the ideal circumstances, which is not what you asked, but again, it's my show. It's our show. We can do what we want. Um, the ideal circumstances is to observe a Sasquatch and then go over and then collect the dirt from his footprints. 
because it would be freshest that way. Um, DNA deteriorates pretty quickly over time in the woods. So if you find a footprint, like I found a footprint and cast it on November 30th um, at one of our study areas. And I don't know how long that print had been there. I mean, the, it had been raining recently, so it was moderately fresh, but footprints can stick around um, for days and days and days under the right conditions. I cast another footprint a week or two before that out in Kentucky, and it had rained on it. So the rain would certainly wash away a lot of the genetic material as well. So that's the problem. So we don't to find and if, to find a footprint and then collect the dirt and then spend, I don't know, six thousand dollars on a test to maybe get something, I just don't have that kind of money. Who does? Um, that's the problem with it. But if you saw a, if, if, well, if I want to say you, if I observed a Sasquatch, went over to where it was after it left the area and then collected the sample, then, then maybe that's a $6,000 gamble, um, to try to get something good. Um, and would I do it? I don't have the money, but I could, I could figure something out. Um, but it, that's, that's the kind of circumstance that it needs to be for me at least to spend any amount of money like that chasing something that probably is going to, or that might come up inconclusive anyway. So right. that's my thought on it. I mean, I'm not going to, it's people just don't understand, you know, unfortunately uh, it's, it's a thing that we're all stuck inside of our own head. I get people all the time saying to me, you got to come to the property. I've heard knocks back there. You've got to do this because I've this. Well, that's not me. And I, over the years I've, I've, got a lot of reports and, and people talking to me and not everybody is, well, most people are trustworthy, not everybody, but not everybody's a fantastic observer and they're not my experiences. So I, that's asking an awful lot to assume that we're going to gamble that level of money that we really don't have on, on a maybe. But again, if I saw the Sasquatch do it, that's my experience and I can take that to the bank for me at least. Not, I wouldn't expect anybody else to do that though. No, I would never expect somebody else to uh, just automatically assume I'm 100% correct and spend their $6,000 on it. But if I saw the Sasquatch and I was confident of that, then that's a chance for me to spend that kind of money to maybe get something. And then it might be worth it. But then, but like Meldrum was saying, what, you only have a 10 in 1,000 chance of opening the right door with a test like that, right? Yeah, there's problems with that. And um, I was talking to Jeff the other day, actually. I had a nice conversation with him. And he's going to be publishing something in the RHI, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, uh, his paper that you can find online at the um, Idaho State University site there. But if you just Google Relic Hominoid Inquiry, it'll come up right away. Um, he's going to be publishing a paper that'll show that it's even a little bit more complicated than that pretty soon. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to tell anything because they're not done peer reviewing it, but Haskell Hart, who you mentioned a little while ago is one of the peer reviewers on this paper. So there's a lot of complications involved and we're just, that science is fairly new and we're kind of at the cusp of it all. And we're learning a lot more about it and the complications of how that can apply to Sasquatches all the time. Really cool things are coming around. And yeah, um, uh, Mark, you're absolutely correct that that's the sort of thing that should be done. But we, I personally, Cliff, needs a certain set of circumstances to get that done because I just frankly don't have that kind of money. Right. Uh, you know what? Uh, God, I forgot to bring – I wanted to bring this up earlier. This is totally – I'm going off the question thing. But how rad was that new video, the PG film with the AI? Uh, oh, it was great. That was it awesome. Was, it was fantastic, yeah. And if anybody out there doesn't know what we're talking about, um, on December 3rd, I believe, um, a show called The Proof is Out There. The Proof is Out There. Um, I don't – what network is it on, Bobo? Do you know? History. 
Was it history? Yeah. I mean, I, I did the gig. I, I was, I'm on the TV show and I don't even know that. So, but anyway, a gig is a gig. But um, yeah, the proof is out there, which is basically I mean, most of their episodes are one of these clip shows where they, they show a clip and then they ask various folks what they think of it. And I, I've done two seasons of this with for them so far. And yeah, it's a fun job. I enjoy, I enjoy doing it. I like the analysis of various pieces of footage. But they came to me. Um, we're filming in the museum here. Um, so if you watch any of the other episodes and and, uh, and you, you see me on there, we're filming in the museum. And they asked me about the PG film. And I said, well, I can tell you how much, the, like, I can tell, I can get you in contact with the Patterson family and this and that. And you, if you do something on the PG film, you got to have Meldrum and, and Bill Munns involved and stuff. And I guess enough people told them, and I know they spoke to Dr. Meldrum as well about this. I guess enough people kind of uh, were echoing each other that they actually got it together and did it. And they got Isaac. I can't remember Isaac's last name, but um, I have his number downstairs because he's been in the museum as well and offered his services to us. Um, they got Isaac to run the, I think, 12 copies of the PG film through artificial intelligence. And the computers looked at all the blemishes and dots and this and that's and artifacts, and they removed everything from the footage that the computer didn't think was in the original. And what we have is the most amazing, detailed, clear, in-focus version of the Patterson-Gimlin film that's ever been seen outside of the original. Yeah, that was amazing. But anyway, yeah, it was a great program. So if you can see it, I I think there's links online. You can just stream it for free, if I remember right. Um, Yeah, definitely check it out because you will treat your eyeballs to the coolest version of the PG film that's been produced so far. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's got to be a clip on YouTube if you go to the History Channel site. Yeah, well, Meldrum said that um, on his Facebook page he put a link to um, where you can stream it. Oh, nice. Yeah, he was going to send it to me, but uh, you know, Jeff's so busy and stuff, so I I, I need to go check it out because I, I I'd like to see the the finished product and see what the skeptics have to say because I'm always interested in this. I like skeptics, I really do. Although to be very fair, I'm very skeptical of the skeptics. <laughs> exactly. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Question from Andy Easton. Cliff, I'd like to ask if you've ever had any dermal ridge analysis done on your footprint cast. I know Jimmy Chilcutt did analysis on some of Jeff Meldrum's casts, and they showed patterns that were unlike any other ape species or those of humans. Yeah. You know, yeah, okay. Here, here's here's a dermal ridge uh, spiel, I suppose. Um, there are certainly Sasquatch prints with dermatoglyphics on them. Absolutely. Big question, though, are they from Sasquatches? The the, the dermatoglyphics? Because going back to the stuff that's in Dr. Meldrum's book, and I've yeah, I've spoken to Jeff about this. Some of those prints that are reported to have dermatoglyphics. Those are not dermatoglyphics. And I know Jimmy Chilcutt investigated it, and I know all these experts, blah, blah, blah. But like the Onion Mountain Tract, for example, 1967 Onion Mountain Tract, um, those are not dermatoglyphics. And those were some of the patterns that were unlike humans in a lot of ways. Um, those tr- the, the, the marks in the 1967 Onion Mountain Tracts are casting artifacts. Um, they were taken in August of 1967 in Blue Creek Mountain. And Bobo, you can vouch for this. Blue Creek Mountain is hot as hell in August, right? Yeah. Oh, it's just yeah. off the charts. So we're talking like 110. It can be extraordinarily hot up there. And this powdery sort of duff that they cast it in um, is, is a highly wicking substrate. Wicking, of course, in this case means it sucks the water out of stuff. So when you when you pour plaster into this, 
it'll suck the moisture out of the plaster and make it thicker. And because of that, and you can even see this in the Onion Mountain cast itself, in the middle of the cast, there is a small divot because they weren't splatter casting. They were just pouring the plaster in the middle of the cast and it would go down. And then, and since it's a fine sort of powdery duff sort of thing, because they're building the road at the time in 1967, um, it would would make a little divot in the middle of the cast. And you can see that in a lot of the old casts and even nowadays in newer casts too. And then it would spread outwards. Now, mind you, the substrate is sucking the moisture out of the plaster as it moves outwards from this divot. And so the plaster is becoming thicker as the moisture is being sucked out of it. And it starts almost like folding over itself, kind of like lava does. You know, water, when it flows out, goes swoosh, and it's just out. But lava, when it moves, it kind of folds over itself in some ways. And what that does is is it creates casting artifacts of these lines. And you can see these lines have a central point where that divot is. Now, that to me is casting artifact. And um, what's his name? Matt Crowley, I think his name is. He did these experiments. Say again? Yeah, it was Crowley. Yeah, Matt Crowley did really good experiments um, with this sort of thing and showed that, yeah, these casting artifacts can be duplicated. Now, he also did some um, other experiments showing that uh, um, the mid-tarsal ridge um, can be duplicated, but I find those very unconvincing. Yeah, you know, just they don't, they just don't look the same as a real footprint to me. Um, so I don't, I'm not convinced by those experiments and what he tried to show there. But these casting artifact things, he's spot on, clearly spot on. And then you move on to other footprint casts, like the famous wrinkle foot prints. Wrinkle foot, uh, which was taken at uh, Table Springs, I think in 19. 19- 84 or 6. I'd have to check my notes. I don't have a great memory, so that's why I write things down. But uh, at the, these table spring prints, they were um, these supposedly have dramatic lithics. Dr. Krantz commented about how the underside of the foot looked very wrinkled. Um, later on, those were thought to be dramatic lithics. And again, I disagree. I disagree. Because I've seen very, very similar markings on my garage floor. And what that when what happened on the garage floor is that the cement set and the water was on top and the water started flowing. So these on my cement floor are water striations, and I think that that's what we see in the wrinkle footprints as well. And so I went to Doctor Meldrum. I remember asking him in his lab, um, Table Springs, do you know about the circumstances of these prints, the wrinkle footprints? And um, he basically said it was a super saturated soil. So I'm inclined to think that these particular markings are just water striations. Um, they sure look like it to me. Um, and again, I could be wrong. I'm I'm open to debate on this. I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong. I'm saying that I've got problems with it. But there are other prints um, that have dramatic lithics in them. Now, to complicate those matters, um, uh, when you show uh, another species real fast, when you show a dog something, the first thing it does is it smells it. And then it puts it in, puts it in its mouth, right? Because for dogs, uh, their sense of smell is like the dominant sense. Um, they, they their whole world is about smell. They don't look at things as much as they, they they smell things to figure things out. They can even smell time, which is mind blowing, but it's true. Um, there, a fantastic book called uh, Inside of a Dog, I think, and um, read about that. It's about dog psychology. But anyway, um, when you show something to a human. First thing we do is look at it because that's our dominant sense. We're visual apes. And then then we touch it. That's just what we do. And so a lot of these footprint casts have been touched by the person who cast it. 
Um, a great example, and one that is very pertinent to what we're speaking of now, is uh, the Elkins Creek cast from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are very clear finger and an entire palm marks in the cast. And yet, this is one of those casts that Jimmy Chilcutt says has dramatic lyrics in it. Well, that could very well be true. But since the caster, uh, James Aiken, apparently, touched the cast, or at least if he didn't, somebody else did, um, assuming that it's a real cast, and I don't, th- I think it is a real cast. I don't think this. I don't think they're hoaxers. I don't think they're lying about this. But somebody touched the cat, the, the footprint, before it was cast. So those dramatoglyphics are now automatically discounted because we can't tell if they're from a human or a Sasquatch. Very problematic. And mind you. All sorts of people touched casts throughout the years. I have footprint casts from Bob Titmus, where as clear as day, he so he or somebody touched the footprint before it was cast. Peter Byrne, same thing. The one cast from the Peter Byrne collection, um, fingerprints all over the thing. It was either touched or sculpted. Don't really know. Um, and of course, Peter just cast it or whatever. So who knows what really happened? I asked Peter about it too long ago. He doesn't remember. So anyway there's a problem with humans because we like to touch things um, and people touch these footprints. So, but there are other casts um, uh, off the top of my head. I think it's 2018 Trimble County cast from Tom Shea. He almost didn't even cast this thing. He said, yeah, I, I had a little extra plaster. So I put it in. I'm so glad he did. Um, all over the place are patches of dramatic lyrics, just all over it. Um, and you can actually see toenails in this particular cast as well. Oh, fantastic. that one. Yeah, oh, it's, one. it's fantastic. Fantastic, the detail. And it has a lot to do with that Kentucky clay that they're casting in too. It holds a print for a long time and it holds a lot of really minute details. Um, dermatoglyphics are in fact there. And Tom actually has touched casts too, by the way. I, I At one time I spoke to Tom and said, did you touch this? And he goes, "Not the, I, I may have, I don't know. So well, look at this. He goes, oh my gosh, I, that's clearly a fingerprint. I must have. Um, and you know, so- Yeah, let out of the soil. Yeah, well, yeah, or any, well, the, the touching the underside of it. Yeah, like so, pulling it up. Well, before he cast it, because it was, uh, these, oh. these fingerprints were preserved in the plaster, right? Okay. Yeah, so, but but again, Tom, who's an excellent tracker, an excellent caster, he he actually, in the past, has touched them too. So I brought that to his attention. And, and you know, when you're cleaning out a footprint before you cast it, trying to get things out of it, we do lift things up if they're not attached. We, we keep the, the things that are attached to the ground in it because we can just take, well, we don't worry about that. But if you can remove the stuff from the cast or from the print before you cast it, you should. And then a lot of times that's how fingers get introduced to these casts. So uh, if you're out there and you have a print, just blow on it. Like get down on your hands and knees. Yeah, you're going to get dirty, but this Bigfoot and deal with it. Get down there and blow on it as hard as you can to try to get, get all that loose stuff out. And that's probably a little bit better way than touching it because you don't want to introduce your dramatic lyrics for this reason. Um, so there are dramatic lyrics in a lot of these casts. I actually have spent, sent things to Jimmy Chilcutt and he wrote back saying, yeah, these are derms. I don't know if they're human or Sasquatch, but these are derms. Um, there, there's a print from Col- the Colton area that I did this with uh, one time. Uh, but what we need is what we may have, but I have not had a chance to do the analysis of. What we need are repeated dermatoglyphics in the same area of the same foot again and again. And um, the the footprint trail from B. Mills, um, of that area uh, outside Lancaster in Ohio, that is the one that may hold what we need to really push the dermatoglyphic ball further down the court. But I don't have copies of them. I don't. Um, I, I just have never got them. Uh, I don't know if B has made molds or not of them. Um, I prob- should probably speak to her about that. 
But I would love to get in deep with those particular casts, whether there's five or eight of them, I can't remember, and then look to see if we can find repeated patterns of dermatoglyphics in the same patches, in the same areas, on the same foot, from right foot to right foot. That is what is missing at this point to uh, make the dermatoglyphic argument more compelling. Because that would discount somebody touching it. And that would say, well, that's obviously part of the foot itself. I thought they could leave fingerprints too, like a prying it up out of the ground when it's still kind of tacky and you can when you're lifting up on it if you're touching touching it straight on you can put dramatic lifts on that way too can't you i suppose you could but the thing about that is um usually in, in every case that i've personally dealt with um there's a layer of soil there, on the bottom of yeah. the print yeah and, and i recommend that you leave the soil on the bottom of the print for at least a day or two at least a day and put it in a warm spot and let it start drying out. And then you can start hosing it down gently with water. You don't, you don't take brushes to it. You, you hose it down gently with water because water won't, won't introduce scratch marks like a, a stiff brush might. And those can also be confused as dermatoglyphics. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on derms. I'm not, so yeah, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of analysis of it, but we're kind of waiting for that silver bullet. We're kind of waiting for that magic key. That is a repeated patch I identified repeated dermatoglyphics in the same part of the same foot from print to print. All right. Next question is from Keith uh, Mastrian. I'm wondering about Bigfoot's shedding. With so much fur, don't they shed as the weather turns warmer? And if they are shedding, wouldn't we be finding their fur? Well, they have hair. Sure. They do have hair. Yeah. They don't have fur. They have hair. There's a difference. So I I don't know. I mean, I've talked to people about that. They've said that it seems like if they see them, the ones that have like, you know, the three to four inch hair or whatever, they say that year round and people down the, it, I don't know if it really correlates because the hairiest ones we hear about are from the Southeast down in Florida and Georgia. Like that's where you hear those orangutan looking ones with real long hair on them, you know, thicker, thicker hair. Looks like they're made for the Arctic, but they're down in the swamps. Now, the, I guess the question is, uh, do apes shed? I don't, I don't think so. Do they? Yeah, well, this is rhesus monkeys shed seasonally, but they're they have fur, not hair, because they're not apes; they're monkeys. So monkeys have fur, but apes have hair. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. I think the question here is: if they are shedding, wouldn't we be finding their fur or their hair? Well, we do find their hair. Um, there are a small number of hairs, um, and we're talking a few dozen, probably, or a little bit more than that, maybe, um, that are found in North American woods that are not identifiable as any other species. And these hairs also have um, the the characteristics that are common in ape hair. Uh, Those characteristics are uh, parallel sides with little or no taper, a blunt end. And in Sasquatch hair, they generally shine red when backlit. Um, when you, you know, and Sasquatches as well, like I've spoken to a lot of people over the years that, that the animal looked black, but when it walked in front of the headlights or whatever, it's shined red. That's one of the characteristics of Sasquatch is, and their hair. Um, and also, uh, everybody knows about the medulla, or if you don't, that the medulla is like the common, or I'm sorry, the, the, the core of the hair. It's like a hollow shaft inside the hair, kind of like a pencil lead inside of a pencil. And, um, and Sasquatches, it seems that this is largely absent or at least fragmentary. It's not a real strong medulla like you get in a bear hair or something like that, um, which complicates a lot of things because the medulla turns out to be the only place inside of a hair where you can get DNA material. And since Sasquatches generally lack a medulla or have a very fragmentary medulla, this already hard process becomes almost impossible, um, which is unfortunate. 
Yeah. And the reason I, I can rattle all this stuff off is because I've been doing a lot of work on it. We've just built a display um, on Sasquatch hair. And we also have a, uh, at the North American Bigfoot Center, we also have a microscope for um, microscopic hair analysis of hair. And we've been weeding through our um, various samples that have been sent to us over the years. And we found horse and dog and cow and all sorts of stuff, um, even some human hair. But um, but yeah, we have one or two precious samples of, sa of possible Sasquatch hair that will be on display here at the NABC. So. Did you look at the ones I gave you? No, I just got those out the other day, actually. I've been going through the stuff that we had piled up at the museum, and I just brought those in literally this past weekend. We're going to put those under the scope uh, this week. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know how, how that goes. Sweet. This comes from Jennifer Trout. Hey, guys, love the podcast and how much fun you guys have talking Squatch. So this is more of a request than a question, but can you guys bring back Bobo Storytime? Well, gather around, it's Bobo Storytime. Any description of felonious or criminal activity is being told here strictly for entertainment purposes and is in no way an admission of guilt or even true for that matter. Oh, man, I'm not ready for that. Let's see. Well, it's almost Christmas. I guess I should do something Christmassy. Back in the mid-90s, I was working on a crab boat, and uh, our skipper was this really top, well-known surfer guy, big wave expert, just total waterman, oceanman. Um, he made the call about going running the, the Humboldt Bay Harbor, which is a really sketchy, uh, it's like one of the most dangerous boat harbor crossings in, in North America. Like between yeah. the jetties, you mean? Like where yeah. the boats go in and out of the harbor? Yeah, yeah. And so anyways, people would people would defer to Hugh, my skipper, to his, uh, he, he, knew the, he knew the swells there better than anyone. He surfed it as big as it got. He, you know, went in there for 20, 30 years fishing. So if, if he said go, you know, there'd be a group of boats would run and make a go at it. And uh, it was right before Christmas. It was the 23rd or the 24th. It was at night. The only time there was a high tide, we were just going to run out, go to the first string of pots we had real close, just run like five, ten pots and get enough crab for the Christmas for like friends and family. And But it was the swell was 23 feet at 17 seconds and was blowing about 30 knots. I mean, it was, it was big. It was gnarly. It was rough. We were going. We were going out, and um, it was freezing too. It was cold as hell, and you know we're, getting, we're like, this is going to be sketchy. You know, this is like the biggest we've ever run the bar, but we felt pretty confident because it was like a really high tide, like an eight, eight, six, eight, seven, something like that. We thought, well, that high flood, we can get out and get back on the same because usually you got to wait for the tide change like twelve hours, but we weren't going to go that far out. Well, we ended up running out there on the way out. Um, I was the block is that big metal spinning wheel. That oh, the thing that with. brings the the cages up and down. Yep, exactly. Okay. And we had like you know all this stuff, jerry rigged, homemade stuff. We had like a off a trailer hitch. We had well mounted on the on the uh, mounted on the block on the top where you could secure it was a, we welded on a trailer like a two inch ball trailer hitch, and then we uh, cut off the, the tongue of a trailer. Well, that. Uh, Onto a, you could lower it or raise it, and then when you lowered it, it would lock on. You could hitch it like a trailer hitch onto the ball on the block, and it would hold the block steady. So when you ran gear, the block wasn't flying around; it was held held in place. And uh, I guess because it, it was icing all this stuff out, I had, 
I didn't, I didn't latch it down properly. I, my hands were so numb, I couldn't feel if I did or not. I, but I, it never happened before. It didn't, so I just assumed it was latched. And we went out there, and as soon as we started running gear, the the trailer hitch, the actual the the hitch that's attached to the the wheelhouse in the boat, that was holding steady. But the the block, the ball popped out, and we the next wave we hit. The, the whole block like weighs 600 pounds, hit me right in the face, just cracked me across, cracked my cheekbone, knocked out some teeth, um, knocked me out, flung me to the opposite side of the boat, went across the whole deck in the air and landed in a big tub of squid bait and just was laying there. And my skipper comes out yelling, he's like, Match busting his ass back out here and you're taking a nap? Because I guess I was kind of like snoring, sounding a little bit or whatever. And it was, was actually just blood gurgling down your yeah. sinuses. <laughs> yeah. But we I ended up getting back on my feet after about five minutes, ten minutes. And we ran the gear and got all our pots. And when we were coming back and Hugh wanted to get back soon because we'd been gone longer than we thought. We were he's like, Well, let's cut let's cut it. We were coming from the north side. So let's cut the north north jetty. Like there's a hole you can kind of between the jetty. There's sandbars because the Humboldt Bay is like a huge river on outgoing tides. So it pumps sandbar. There's rivers. The river's empty into the bay, and then that empties out. You know, the bay on low tide going out brings a lot of sand out. So there's there's sandbars that go out for like a series of like three miles. But between each sandbar, there's a hole, and the smaller the swell is, the the closer you can cut in those holes to the to the jetty and not go all the way out and around. And you can save you know 15, 20 minutes, whatever. So we were in, and I, I thought it was a bad idea, but I was like, well, Hugh's making the call. He wants to do it. And he was up there smoking joints and stuff, and he was pretty blazed. And I was thinking, like, man, this seems sketchy. This seems sketchy. And we're coming in, and all of a sudden, I just hear this roaring sound. And I just look at Matt, the other deckhand. We're, we're both in the wheelhouse at this point. And we're all sitting there just going, like, uh-oh. And I look out, and there was white water on both sides of us, in front of us. And then we were, on this, we were going over the sandbar at this time. And there's this huge wall of whitewater, bigger than all the rest, coming from you know out due west. Coming, it already broke on the outer sandbar, so it was a huge swell. It was big, must have been like you know 40, 40, 50 foot face when it broke out, about a quarter mile past us. So I'm looking at the fathometer, seeing the depth, and we're like in real shallow water, like six fathoms or something. Like if we would have got rolled. It would have, we would we just would have went down. I, I doubt, I doubt we would have lived, and. uh we're just, he's flooring it and flooring it. And I never saw him get scared ever running the boat. And his eyes got big and his, he got real wide eyed. And he goes, I effed up. And I was like, oh, this is not good. So, you know, we're, we're putting on, you know, getting the, the uh, survival suits out and all that. It's about, I think it was about 10 or, 11, 10 or 11 at night. It was pitch black. And, as that white water was catching up, catching up to us, catching up to us, it's, here it is, it's about to roll us over. All of a sudden, the fathometer starts dropping. We start hitting in the hole, and then it dropped down to like, I don't know, like 18 fathoms or something like that, whatever it was. And we just had, so the, it, the whole thing kind of sloughed off and went back into like a rolling swell, not a breaking wave. And it just, we just, but it was still pretty steep, and it just flung us. I mean, we went way up in the air and then way down, and then we cut in. But yeah, that was. Christmas crab run. Christmas crab. How big of a boat is this, Bobo? Just a 40-footer. 40 40-foot, 40 which isn't really that big when it comes down no, to it. No, it's small. It's small for commercial, but it was, it was a custom-built. 
It was the biggest Radden, you know, those Radden boats from Santa Barbara. Okay. Urchin divers in them. It was the biggest Radden they ever built. They built it custom and it, it could haul as many uh, pots as like a lot of like 50, 54 footers. The way it was set, it was all deck space. So it was, it was a bitch and crab, but I loved it. Yeah, man, yeah, I bet uh, in a 40 footer though, you feel every bump in the water though. That's a, that's a tiny little boat for a commercial. Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I cracked my, um, uh, broke my, uh, pallet on the top, had a little, uh, fracture in the eye socket and lost, uh, three teeth. How many teeth have you lost in your life, Bobo? And I don't count baby teeth. I got three knocked out then. Then I got five knocked out surfing and that one with the kid. So that's nine, nine. (laughs) 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 Well, we've already told the story about your, uh, Tijuana dentist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave that for another time. Then (laughs) sounds like he had his work cut out for him though. (laughs) Yeah. And, but you know, you cracked your face, you cracked your teeth, but it did not crack your, your holiday spirit. I assume. Nope. We ran the pots, took a couple days off for the storm. And then I came back and, Still finished out. Nice. And had crab for dinner. Yep. Nice. Happy ending. Yep. Well, yeah, I guess uh, Merry Christmas to everyone out there uh, listening to the show. And Yeah, yeah. This, uh, Christmas was just yesterday, if, I, if this goes out where I when I think it goes out. Well, I hope everyone had a great Christmas then. Yeah, very hairy Squatchmas. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was fun, Bobes. I enjoyed that one, as I always do. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think, man? I was stumped by some of those questions. It was like, they're kind of hard to answer off the top of my head. No, I think, but, but I think that, I mean, hate to say it. I think we kind of set a good example by saying, I don't know, but I think this, I think that's a very appropriate answer because it's true. Most of the time we don't have the answers. We just have some experience and so we can speculate, but I don't know is always a great answer because at least, you know, it's honest. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I hope the Bigfoot community hears that. Like, if to say I don't know doesn't mean you don't you're stupid. It just means you don't know, and uh, it's a very honest answer and should be given whenever possible, whenever true. it's true. So, well, right on. Well, everyone listening, I hope you had a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year coming up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2022. A lot of interesting things are on the horizon, and we'll see if any of these pan out. But it's going to be a great year. I, I can feel it. I, I agree. I think, uh, dude, I'm, I'm convinced 2022 is going to be a lot better than 2021. Yeah. And 2021 was better than 2020. So just right. er, everything's coming up Cliff and Bobo. Yeah, exactly. Everything's George, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in and listening. Let your friends and family know. Share, hit the like button, spread the word. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 